The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Psalms, The Anatomy of the Soul. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 44. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us, what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordained salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. But you have rejected us and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sound of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. You have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. For those of you who have just joined us in the past five weeks or so, uh, I'm the pastor here at Sacred City, and it is good to see you. It is good to be here um, as I get situated here, get some things figured out. Um, my wife and I and family were given the privilege of a uh, six-week sabbatical, and after five years in the ministry, this was really good for us, really good for our soul, really good for our families. The first week, Amanda and I got to spend five days together in California. We had the X29, which is the network of churches we're a part of, uh, the X29 lead pastors retreat. And so we went out there for five days and hung out with a lot of church planters and had a lot of uh, had a great time together. We got to go to Catalina Island off of Long Beach, uh, made famous by stepbrothers, I think. There was no wine mixer, but it would have been good. Uh, we had a great time. And then we spent, we came home, got the kids, all four kids loaded in the minivan, uh, loaded the minivan up. Uh, I was, I didn't know if we were going to make it. We had loaded that mini. We had the bikes on the back and I said, no, we can't do it. I look like the clampets. Take them off. And, and uh, if you don't know what the Clampets are, Millennials, uh, that's the Beverly Hillbillies. Um, you need to watch it on Netflix if it's there. 
Uh, and so we, made, we left the bikes, but we made it to Colorado. We spent uh, four weeks in Keystone, Colorado, and had a blast, had an absolute blast. And my soul was refreshed. Got to visit a church out there, and our kids had a great time. We had a great time. A uh, little two-bedroom condo with four kids. That was a little challenging. But honestly, um, we didn't hate them when we left, so that was good. That was a win. Everybody slept. It was good, but it's good to be back. And um, for some of you maybe just joining us, I want, I want to let you know why we do things like this. One, we value rest. We think a sabbatical is biblical. We think taking a Sabbath is biblical. Rest is biblical. And the other reason is we think that the church... Um, isn't supposed to just be kind of like this phenomenal organization that the best speakers always speak or the most gifted leaders always lead. We think of it more in terms of, think of it like this, a teaching hospital. Now, there's a difference between a regular hospital and a teaching hospital. A regular hospital, maybe the best paid, highest paid doctors, the best of the best come in. You go in, you get the, you know, where, where do we go when we need a real, we go to Iowa City, typically, or we go to like Mayo Clinic, right? Th- those are like the best of the best. But thankfully, every hospital's not like that, or we wouldn't have new doctors, right? But so, so sometimes you can go to this thing called a teaching hospital. And honestly, it's probably not the best thing to go to this teaching hospital. You know, you stick your arm out there and oops, 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 let me try again. Let me go, right? And you get poked three or four times trying to find a vein. But what's going on? Well, people are learning hands-on, right? You can't learn just to be a doctor just by reading a book and just by taking some tests, right? You need hands-on practice. You need hands-on work. And that's how you raise up great doctors. You raise up great doctors by giving them an an opportunity to try it out and to fail. Now, that's kind of scary when you think about it as a doctor, right? Like, just give it a try, right? Uh, I think it's cancer, right? Oh, no, no, hold on. Somebody comes alongside of them. Well, that's what we want to be as a church. We want to be a teaching hospital type of church. We want to raise up new men to go plant churches. We want to raise up new men and women to go lead missional communities. And that's the only way the church is going to be able to multiply. And what happens is, is when I leave, uh, a vacuum is created, right? And every vacuum, uh, science will tell you, a vacuum Uh, wants to be filled. So when you create a vacuum, things want to go in it. And so when I leave for six weeks, it creates a vacuum of leadership in our church and people step up and sometimes they knock it out of the park and you never knew they were gifted right? You never knew they could do that. And everybody goes, what, what have you been waiting for? And they just maybe figure out their gifts. And then sometimes you get up and whiff, okay, let's go back and figure out what, what happened. And so we had some great sermons that were preached while I'm gone. We had some not so great sermons preached while I'm gone. And it's okay both ways. It's okay. The things that I'm thankful for is the gospel was proclaimed every single week. They were faithful to the text. Their exegesis was solid and all the text. It was great. And they got up here and they took a swing. And I'm really thankful for that. And we're wanting to be a church that plants churches, like a whole movement of churches. And by God's grace, we are planting a church in Moline, Illinois, the first of January, first Sunday of January. And I have great news today because our church planting resident, our are the one who's been poking, poking us with, with needles and he's missed a few times, but then he found a vein a couple times, right? Sam Schmidt has been approved by the Acts 29 network. And now Sacred City Moline 
is uh, now a, an official a candidate church. So basically once we have 40 people committed, which I think we've got that already, but we don't have your names down yet. Once we have 40 people committed, then that will become an official Acts 29 church. And we are looking forward to that uh, in January. So God's been really gracious to us and really good. And I'm really thankful. So thank you for giving me a sabbatical and thank you for stepping up and however many different ways people saw something needed to be filled and you stepped up and filled it and you, and you, uh, and you guys, the church went on and everything was great uh, with me out of town. Uh, so I'm really thankful for that. And we're taking another one next week. So uh, <laughs> we'll be gone. See ya. No, I'm just joking. So let me pray, jump in. And, and I, I know it's hot in here. I apologize for that. Um, the staff has figured out the only way to keep me preaching under an hour or about an hour is to make it really hot in here. Either that or they want you to think about hell. I don't know. <laughs> One of those two. Let me pray. Father, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for how you've just gifted our church, that it's not by our own works, but it's by your grace that you've done so many things, so many people here, so many marriages restored, so many new people coming to faith. God, you are so good. So many children being born. There, there's so many things to celebrate. We thank you for being near to us when so many churches, they say 80% of churches are in decline and so many churches are closing their doors every Sunday and you've chosen to bless us. Let us not take pride in that. As the psalmist said, let's boast only in the Lord. Let us uh, thank you in humility. And now as we come to your word, Father, we ask that the spirit would be here, that you would anoint me, think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords, allow us to hear you. Um, when I say, if I say something dumb, let it fall on deaf ears this morning, Father. But when it's anointed, when it's something from you, I pray that it would bring life uh, and growth uh, to people's faith, to people's lives, to people's spiritual life this morning. Uh, may you be exalted, Jesus. May you be lifted up. Uh, would you please bless this time as we come under the authority of your word in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are in Psalm 44 this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles and follow with me there, you can find it on your app. Uh, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, there'll be a, our liturgy is right there. You can follow along with us this morning. If you're just joining us, we're in the last two weeks of a sermon series on the book of Psalms that we've entitled the anatomy of the soul. Now we didn't create that title. Um, we did create the logo, but uh, our soul is our mind and our will and emotions. And it was John Calvin who first said that the book of Psalms were an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And he says this, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, he says, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the mind of men are wont to be agitated. So Calvin says, if you go to the Psalms, you're going to find every single human emotion expressed and given voice to. It's like a mirror that you can look and you can say, yeah, I felt like that before. Oh, that's how he expresses his anger. Oh, that's what he does when he feels grief. Or that's what he does when he feels hurt or pain or he's depressed or he's lonely. We can see it in the scriptures, in the Psalms. And, what it, and that makes the book of Psalms one of the most helpful books in all of the Bible. But the Psalms have kind of fallen upon hard times. Very few preachers 
preach on the Psalms and very few people really understand the Psalms and they don't use them because they don't understand what they are. They don't really use them as they're intended to be used. Now that might be because the Psalms can definitely be a little bit confusing. We are going to see today the writer of Psalm 44 go off on God. We already did see it, right? Verses one through eight, he kind of, here's my rough outline, verses, uh, the rough outline of the text. Verses one through eight, he remembers all of the stories he's been told about God's past blessing upon Israel by his forefathers. So he remembers the stories his dad told him about the Red Sea and about all the good stuff that God had done. He remembers on that and he thinks about it longingly. He's like, remember when God did this? Remember when God did that? Oh God, you rescued us and, and you tore down the other nations, but you exalted us. Verses one through eight, he's remembering kind of the glorious past. But then in verses nine through six, 16, the psalmist, actually it almost goes to verse 22. The psalmist has the audacity to blame God for all of Israel's current problems. He says to God, you sold us. That's what he says in verse 12. You sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. In verse 11, he says, you've made us like sheep for slaughter and scattered us among the nations. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten the spoil. You've rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. What's the psalmist saying? He's saying this, I look back on the history of Israel and we used to win the battles, not not by our bow, not by our strength, because God went with us. When we went out to battle, God marched with us and we were victorious. But now he's looking at his present circumstances and it's terrible. And he's saying, now we go out to battle and we're destroyed. Now other nations are mocking us and making fun of us and shame is covering our face. And the psalmist has the audacity to say, it's your fault, God. You have sold us. He says, you have made us a laughing stock among the nations. And, and he, has this, he has this to say, and we've done nothing wrong. We've remembered the covenant. We haven't worshiped idols. We're not lying. We're not cheating. We are in the right and you are in the wrong. And he says in verse 15, because of this, everybody's saying, look, what, look, look. God has left them. God's abandoned them. We're defeating them. He says, shame has covered my face. And that is the emotion that we're going to be talking about today. Shame. See, many people don't understand what shame is. They don't, they kind of understand guilt a little bit. They don't understand what shame is. Shame is a feeling that tells us, here it is, you are not good enough. Now, just hold on. Let me build on that a little bit. See, guilt tells us we did something wrong. Shame says there's something wrong with you. Please hear the difference. Guilt says you did something wrong. Shame is about your identity. It's about your personhood. Shame says there's something wrong with me. Where I am guilty of doing something, I am ashamed of myself, right? Guilt is kind of transactional. Shame is relational. Guilt comes when we do something bad, but then it leaves after we paid our dues, right? Like I blew through the the red light and I got a little picture camera ticket this week. Thank God for that. 
right? I'm guilty. I did it. The computer got me. But I pay my $63, and now I'm not guilty anymore, right? Guilt is removed. Guilt is removed once I've paid my debt. Shame isn't like that. Shame is relational. Think about it. When we shame someone, we're saying, I can't believe you're like this. I can't believe you would say that. I can't believe you would vote for that person. Shame is saying there's something wrong with you. And what happens? There's nothing a person can do to remove that shame. But shame doesn't just come from others. Shame also comes from within. When we believe that we are not enough, we do something, we've done something, we feel a certain way, and we say things like this, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I am like this. I can't believe I'm the type of person who would have done whatever, whatever, whatever. I can't believe it. I am ashamed of myself. What is wrong with me? But before we get too far into our study on shame this morning, I want you to see, as Joel was kind of stealing half my sermon this morning, how real and how raw this psalm is. See, we don't hear any platitudes, right? God, I know you're working everything for my good. God, I know that you're sovereign in control of all things, and therefore these armies that are slaughtering my children, you know, right? We don't see any platitudes, We don't see, thank you for being in control. Thank you for being good all the time. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. We don't see that. We don't hear that. What do you hear? I'll tell you what you hear. You hear bad theology. He blames God for all of his problems and all of the nation's problems. He says, I am blameless, and God, you're asleep on the job of running the universe. He accuses God of rejecting his people and forgetting all about them. This would make a decent Sunday school teacher blush. How could a man condemn God? How could a sinful human being accuse God of malpractice? That's just bad theology, plain and simple. And it reminds me, if you've ever seen this kind of a little bit older movie, uh, The Apostle. And this apostle with Robert Duvall, one night he's up in his bedroom and he says, I love you, Lord, but I'm mad at you. And he just starts going off on God. He's yelling and he's screaming and he kept saying, I love you, Lord, but you did me wrong. And he just, he's just going off, and then his mom gets, a, his, he's in his attic upstairs. The neighbor calls his mom, and, and, and she says, somebody's screaming at the top of their lungs in your house. What's going on? He says, well, ever since he was a little boy, sometimes he talks to God, and sometimes he yells at God. Tonight, he's a yelling. And that, that's what I think of when I think of the psalmist. He's mad. He's angry. He's hurt. He's confused, and he's kind of taking it up to God. And I think that's one of the long forgotten beauties of the Psalms. The Psalms have sharp edges because life has sharp edges. 
The Psalms are emotional because life is emotional. Humans are emotional. The poetry of the Psalms are beautiful, right? Psalm 23, one of the most quoted Psalms in all the world, one of the most quote, quote them, kind of poems in all the world, and one of the most known uh, liter, literary uh, units in the history of the world. It's beautiful. Their, poet, their, ah, their poetry is beautiful, but they're also, their content is unadulterated. They're not all flowery prose like that. They're real and raw and a picture of what our prayer life and our song life should look like. The Psalms, I'm sure they've told you over the past six weeks, are a collection of hymns and prayers that are meant to teach us how to sing and pray. And they're written by real men, with real emotions speaking to a real God. You don't see the bland, emotionless prayers that I hear so often in today's day and age, or the sappy, slow dance with Jesus worship songs that ignore the grittiness of life. They ignore the loss and the fear and the anger and the doubt for a hyper-spiritualized, over-realized eschatology that says, everything is awesome. That's basically what most of our worship songs are these days. Turn on the radio. Most of them are a spiritualized version of everything is awesome. I came to Jesus and everything got awesome. Except that's not real life. Right? It's not real life. We still lose children. Right? We still have broken relationships. We still pray for things and we, it, it doesn't happen. We still get sick and some of us die. Everything isn't awesome. Why are our, and then people wonder why they, you know, millennials and people come into the church and they hear everything is awesome. And they think my life isn't awesome. I'm out of here. I guess you have to be awesome to be going to this church. Right? We put our Jesus smile on and get our best clothes on and come in. How you doing? Bless God, brother. I'm good. Everything's awesome. And, ever, and real people are like, everything's not awesome. Everything isn't awesome. And our gatherings and our liturgy and our songs and our prayers should reflect that. That's what the Psalms teach us. I'm going to ask you, is this what, is this what your prayers look like? God, I love you, but I'm mad at you. Why'd you let this happen? What's going on? Where are you? See, this is the, the flow of this text today is, God, you were so good back then. You did so many great things. I know you did. I trust you. But look at our life right now. You have abandoned your people. And then the last section is this. You're going to see it three times. Why, why, why? That's a real prayer from a real man to a real God. See, listen. Oh, if God is real, we should get angry with him because he's not us. And therefore he doesn't do everything we want him to do. Right? If we don't get angry with him, it's because we think he's going to do everything he's, that we want done. I want the promotion. I want the 2.5 kids. I want the 2000 square foot house. I want whatever, blah, 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 in that order. And if you do everything I want, we'll never have a problem. See, that's not a real God. He's a real God, so he crosses your will. He says no to you. 
And therefore you should have a problem with him sometimes. But what I think, I think most of us, we, we aren't this real with God as the psalmist is real. We bring our edited ideas and our edited emotions and our nice, inoffensive and passionless prayers to him. Many of us pray some things that we would never even know if he said no to or said yes to kind of cock your head and like, what did they just ask for? I know far too often I pray that way. I don't really pray what I'm thinking or feeling in the moment. I pray what I think I should pray. Why do we do that? Now listen, this, is, this might catch you off guard. I think we do that because we're ashamed. We don't realize it, but we're ashamed. See, what shame does is it tells you, you in your current state right now, you're not enough. You won't be accepted. And when we believe that, one of the first responses of the human heart is to edit ourselves. When we feel ashamed, we no longer bring our real self to a real God or even a real person. We bring this edited version of ourself before others in God, the self that we think is going to be accepted. I'm going to start using big words when I'm around this person because I think they'll accept that. I'm going to not talk about this part of my life because I don't think they'll accept me if they knew that about me. Right? We edit ourselves to be accepted by others. But here's the unfortunate truth behind that. What we want as human beings more than anything else in life is to be loved. We want to be loved by God, of course, and we want to be loved by others. That's what we crave deep down in our soul. But shame tells us if people really knew the real you, they wouldn't love you. If they know the truth about you, they will not accept you. And if God, think about this, if God is as holy as the Bible says he is, then how could God ever love a person like you? With the faults and the sins and the thoughts that you have, how could God ever be kind of into you? Right? And so shame says, if you want God to like you, edit yourself, change yourself. Become a little less offensive and a little less, a little more bland. So we listen to shame and we, we respond by trying our best to cover up our faults and enter our relationships, the best edited version of ourself. But here's the problem with that. The only way to be truly loved is to be truly known. If you bring an edited version of yourself into a relationship with people, they're going to fall in love with a fiction. It's a character that you have created. It's not really you. And this, of course, is exhausting. You're acting all the time. You'll be in a constant cycle of performance and hiding you are performing for people, trying to be what they want you to be, and you're trying to hide all of your faults and all your failures and all of your sins because you think if they really find that out about you, they won't accept you, they won't love you. Well, the same thing happens 
in our relationship with God. We think that he wants this edited religious version of ourself. And so we pray to him and we don't pray honest and open and real like the psalmist. We pray these edited, memorized, copied, bland prayers to God. It, w- it reminds me of like if my, ki- my son, I just think of my son, like he needs something from me and he's standing outside the door and he's thinking, okay, all right, here we go. Father, gracious father, gracious father, most merciful father, right? And he's practicing and he's thinking about it and he comes in and his voice changes. He gets real serious, right? And he starts using big words. Father, I thank you for your sovereignty over our bank account. And I beseech your mercy for a PlayStation game, right? Now, obviously, this is funny, right? It's kind of obnoxious. But how many times, and it might be you, how many times have you been in a room with someone and they start praying and all of a sudden they go, Father, Jesus. You're like, what just happened? Their voice drops three octaves or it goes up three octaves. Or all of a sudden they just keep saying his name over and over. Like, Dad, Dad, Father, Lord, Father, Jesus, gracious God, merciful. What the heck is that? What's going on right now? Now, it's kind of funny, but I think that's what we do in our relationship with God. Why? Because we're ashamed of who we are. We're ashamed of the way we talk. We're ashamed of the thoughts that we have. I don't know enough theology. I don't know enough the Bible. I don't do this right. So I'm just going to do what Justin did on Sunday, or I'm going to do what this elder did, or I'm going to do what I saw on TV one time. And we're going to pray these obnoxious, weird, fake, phony, edited prayers. And that is exhausting. And guess what? If you have a boring prayer life, that's probably why. That's probably why. You're praying what you think you should pray and not what you really want to pray or you're really feeling in the moment. See, the only way to have a real relationship with God and a real relationship with others is to bring your unedited self into the relationship. That's how you can really be loved and you can really love others. If you bring your real self, you have to bring your real unedited self into emotional contact with another human being. And I know that is scary. It's scary to be that vulnerable, to be fully loved and to fully love someone else requires us to be fully known. And this exposes our greatest fear. Our greatest fear is to be fully known. People know us, we share, we open, we let them in and then they reject us or they hurt us. It's our greatest fear. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning. Because I believe today is your wake-up call. Today is our wake-up call. Today is the day where you can stop the acting and you can embrace the freedom that comes from bringing your real self to the real God and experiencing a real relationship. See, and I'm going to say this. Most people, most people that go to church don't know anything about this. 
They go to church, they sing the songs and smile, they listen to the sermons, and they go home unchanged. But inside, they are still dominated by shame. And their response to shame is the same as everyone else. They hide their faults, and they edit themselves and try harder. They try harder to be a good person. They try harder to be a good dad. They try harder to be the spiritual leader of their home. They try harder. That's the response. And I'm going to tell you this, no one who lives like that will ever experience a real relationship with God. You can't bring your edited self to God and expect to really know him or to be known by him or loved by him. It doesn't work that way. The Psalms teach us bringing our real self to the real God is the only way to have a real relationship. So if we want to have real relationships and listen, that, do you know what? That's what a church is. A church is really nothing but a, a network of relationships. We're relating to God. We're relating to each other and we're relating to those outside of our church. We're saying, come on in, meet my family and meet our God, meet our father. That's what the church is, is a network of relationships. When it says that the greatest commandment is to love God, that's to have a great relationship with God and to love others. That's to have a relationship with other people. It's not come in and listen to a good sermon and sing some good music. It's to have a relationship. And that's why the Psalms, listen to this, speak about shame over 50 times. And in fact, I think the scripture teaches that shame is the foundational emotional response of a human being. Listen to this. Did you know that shame is the first emotion ever mentioned in the scriptures? When Adam God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden and guess what? They're naked. And what does it say? They're naked and not afraid. No, it doesn't say that. If you're running around naked in a garden, you should be afraid. In my opinion, that's sharp things. That's going to hurt, right? You've got to be careful. It doesn't say naked and afraid, naked and not afraid. Naked. <laughs> right? It says naked and not ashamed. Why would it say that? Ashamed. Why is shame the first emotion mentioned? And it's interesting too, what happens when they sin? They disobey God. Their, their relationship with God is fractured by sin. Their relationship with each other is fractured by sin. And what does it say? Right? It's, what do they do? They cover themselves, their nakedness. They realize now they're ashamed. They're ashamed of themselves. They realize they're naked and they grab some fig leaves and they sew them over themselves and cover themselves up. And then what do they do? Hide from God. So you think about this. Shame says, I am not enough. That's what shame does. When they sin, all of a sudden they realize, I have faults, I have flaws. I'm not enough. I don't know if she's going to accept me. I'm naked and vulnerable and open. You can do a lot with hair and makeup, right? You can do a lot with a good wardrobe. They're in their birthday suit, right? I feel vulnerable. I, I, I need to cover myself. I need to hide myself. I don't want her to see my faults. I don't want him to see my faults. And then they hide from God. Now, I think we've talked about this already. I think this is the foundational response of the human to shame. When I feel like I'm not enough, I cover my nakedness. I cover my faults with a high paying job and a lot of degrees. And if I've got a lot of letters before my name, now you don't think you, you think I'm, you think more of me, right? I'm trying to hide my own feeling of vulnerability. I'm trying to hide my own 
nakedness. I work out all the time. I try to get big and swollen, and jacked and strong because I don't want people to know how insecure I actually am. Right? This is our 21st century way of covering our own nakedness and hiding our own faults. And the religious person does the same thing. I go to church. I give my tithes. I sing to God. I read my Bible. I do all these things so I don't feel vulnerable. I don't feel open. I don't feel naked. I cover myself. Shame tells us you're broken. And if you want to be accepted, it's up to you. Change. Fix it. Cover yourself. You can fix this. Hide your flaws. Try harder. With an unhealthy shame, wallows in our weaknesses and never rests at self-improvement. I started thinking this when I was watching the Olympics. It's interesting. Some Olympians, do you notice everybody responds a little different to winning the gold? And some of them, the underdogs that never thought they would make it, they win a gold or they win the, and they're just ecstatic and they're going nuts. But the ones who were like favored to win and the ones that win after, you know, they're favored to win. You should win this race. No problem. And then they win. What do they say? The first thing they were saying is this. I'm just relieved. You just won a gold medal. Why is your first emotional response relief? I'm relieved. It's a shame. I wonder if I'm good enough. I wonder if I've got what it takes. And when you get put up on this pedestal, you get all this pressure. And now if I fail, what are they going to say about me? I'm going to be ashamed. And so the first emotional response, even of Michael Phelps, right? Who has like 172 gold medals was, I'm just relieved. I'm relieved. I think that all of our sin, think about this. I think all of our sin springs from shame. We believe that we are not enough. We believe that. And then all of our sin comes out of that. Think about it like this. Why does a person steal? Why would a person cheat their employer and steal? Because who they are right now, who they are, what they have, what they possess is not enough. I'm ashamed of my status in life and therefore I'm going to cheat to get ahead. Why do we get angry? I'll tell you what, Eric pinpointed it last week with kids. When it comes to our kids, I get the most angry when I think I'm being ashamed, right? Everybody knows that you take them to Walmart. You dare to take all four of them at the same time to Walmart. And they're just like, I want that. I want that. I want that. Right. It doesn't matter if you say yes to one thing, boom, 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 boom. And you say no, what? Right. Exorcism in the moment. And what you're not, you're mad at them, but you know, I could take you to the bathroom right now. You're giving them the eye. You're getting it when we get in the van. You're getting it when you get in the van. You're giving them the eye. They're still doing it. But what do you feel? You feel the eyes of others. You feel that person next door going, she doesn't discipline her children. Right? You, you feel the judgment coming on from, from the others outside? What is that? That's shame. So why do you get so angry? It's not just that they're disobedience. You get angry because you're ashamed. You feel like you're not a good enough parent. If I was a better parent, my kids would be reading the Bible in the cart as I went through. The, <laughs> right? 
You want anything? No. I'm laying down in a green pasture right now. I shall not want, Mom. <laughs> he leadeth me by streams of water. My soul is at rest. I'm good. See, our sin comes out of this idea and this belief that we are not enough in ourself. And that's exactly what's going on in the psalm. The psalmist is angry. He's hurt. He's confused. He knows that God has been faithful and God has been good in the lives of his ancestors, but he's ashamed in the moment. He's saying all these nations are looking at us and they're saying, God has abandoned you and God has forgotten you. And what a joke to serve that God. And I think this is our cultural moment right now. If you haven't experienced it already, the things we believe to believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God, right? If you say that on Facebook, you're going to be ashamed. They're going to shame you. If you say what we believe about sexuality and what we believe about gender and what we believe about these things, you're going, they're going to try to shame you. And the psalmist is feeling this pressure in this moment. And he's saying, I am ashamed The nation is falling apart. We're losing battles. God, you've abandoned us. And he says three times in verses 23 through 24, he says, awake. Why are you sleeping, Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why again? He says, why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. How many of you have prayed like that? Why, God? Why is this happening? Why is my marriage falling apart? Why are our kids abandoning us, walking away? Why do I have this sickness? What's going on? Why are people blowing themselves up? Why are there gunmen? Why is there racism still in our country today? Why, oh Lord? But this is where we see most that the psalmist does something that I think most of us miss. Even those of us who are real and raw and we let God have it occasionally. See, the psalmist doesn't make a bunch of promises here. Right? He doesn't reevaluate the battle plan and say, okay, I'm going to start training three times a day now. All right, we're going to pray seven times a day. Going to go back into battle. I'm going to adjust some things in my life and then we're going to go back at it. He doesn't make a bunch of promises to God. He doesn't say something like, I'm going to do better and I'm going to try harder. He doesn't make any resolutions or even any phony confessions. What's a phony confession? When you're like trying to find something to confess. Father, I confess for just all my stuff. Just, I know I did something today. Right? Like there's just got to be something. Right? He's looking at his life. Like, There's got to be something. If I, Things are going bad in my life, so I must have some kind of unconfessed sin in my life. I know there's people that teach that. It's false. Right? I must I just find something to confess. No, he doesn't do that. What does he say? He says, he says to God, rise up. God, wake up and come to our help. See, Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves when they felt shame and they hid in the bushes. We try our best to ignore the shameful emotions that we're feeling when we feel like we're not good enough. I meet so many people that are so high, they're highly successful. And when I talk to them and I get 
you know, usually over a cigar or something, I'm sitting down with them, they feel like I'm about to be found out. What do you mean? What do you mean you're about to be found out? Like you've got advanced degrees, you're high up in the corp- corporate world, you're doing great. What do you mean you're about, I, I feel like I'm not enough. I feel like everybody around me knows more than me. Everybody around me gets it and I just don't get it. See, this feeling of just being inadequate and it drives us to succeed so many times. We try our best to ignore the shameful emotions we're feeling and just work our way out of them. We edit ourselves. We hide our faults. We try to perform. But that's not what the psalmist does. The psalmist says, God, I have a problem. You fix it. Help us. And he ends the psalm like this. Verse 26. Rise up. Come to our help. Look at this. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Whoa. First off, to redeem something means to buy it back. Earlier in verse 12, he said, God, you've sold us. And by verse 26, he says, God, buy us back. Redeem us. Come and find us at the slave auction and look in our eyes and pay the price and buy us back. And what does he mean by that? He means give us victory over our enemies. Don't let us get taken off into Babylon. That's what he means. Don't let these pagan nations kill us and defeat us and ruin our nation and take us off and absorb us into Babylon. Don't let it happen. But you know what? God doesn't answer that prayer in that way. Let me, I'm going to pause there for a second. This is, see, this is what shame is supposed to do. Healthy shame. This is what it's supposed to do for us. Let me quote this Chip Dodd. Healthy shame is an admission of the truth, awakening vulnerability in our own limitations. The gain of healthy shame is that it helps you live in intimacy with yourself, others, and God through the development of humility. So here's what it is. Shame is meant to teach you there is something wrong with you. You're not God. You have limitations. You can't be everywhere all at the same time. You can't meet with every person who wants to meet with you. You don't have all the answers to all your problems. You can't fix yourself, right? You can't resist that one, pe- that one brownie that's sitting on the counter. You can't even do that most of the time. There's something wrong. It's meant to awaken the sense of vulnerability in us. Now listen, here's what's interesting as I close. Many people, you might be in this room and you say, that's exactly why I'm not religious. See, the irreligious say shame is bad. Get rid of it. Get rid of all shame. You shouldn't be ashamed. Do what you want to do. Feel what you want to feel. And if you look in our culture, you realize like if you, if you get rid of all shame, I'll tell you what you come up with. You come up with people like Hugh Hefner, right? Like a 116 year old man still wearing like a silk robe right? Just unashamed that he's a fool and he's wasting his life. You have psychopaths and serial killers. They feel no shame, no remorse for anything they do. That's what you get when you try to suppress shame. But if you look in our culture, we have just as much shame as we've ever had before. You do something wrong on the internet and the shame monsters rise up. People that would never say something like that to your face Hang them, kill them, give them an electric chair. That's basically what you get. 
shame is ripe. So you can't just ignore shame. You can't just push shame down. But then religion says shame is your fault. Religion says you better hide your faults and work yourself out of it. You'll never be accepted if they know the real you. That's what religion does. This creates people who don't cuss or they don't get drunk, but they look down on everyone else and they're full of pride. They have no real relationships with people. Now listen, you might have relationships. They, they kind of look good from the outside, but they're edited. Your wife doesn't know about your porn addiction. Your colleagues don't know how insecure you are all the time. Your kids don't know how dry your relationship is with God. And you're just acting. And I'm saying this morning, there's, a, you, there's freedom for you. And the freedom's not in irreligion. Just forget about shame. And the freedom is not in religion. Do more, work harder, hide yourself. The freedom's in the gospel. The gospel gives us a third way to deal with shame. The gospel says there is something wrong with me. I'm a sinner. I don't just do sin. I am a sinner, but I'm a sinner who is deeply loved by God. And God loves this sinner so much that he sent his one and only son to live a perfect life for me, to die the death that I deserve for my rebellion and my sin. And when I believe that, here it is. We sang the song and I hope we're going to sing it again. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know what's interesting? In Romans chapter 8, Paul quotes from this psalm. When he says that, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us from the nation. Paul quotes that, but Paul doesn't quote it in a negative way. Paul quotes it as proof that he can, we can never be separated from the love of God. Height, depth, width, nothing can separate us from the love of God. See, hear, hear me. The only thing that can free us from this negative view of shame, this toxic shame, is to be fully known and fully loved. And in the gospel, that's exactly what we've got. We've got a God. Think about this, please. We've got a God who knows your thoughts. That should scare us to death. Every lustful thought, every covetous thought, Right? They pull up with a new car. Oh, I love your car. And you're thinking, whoa. <laughs> See, it's so hot in here. That, hot, that light just said, I'm done. <laughs> you say, oh, I love your car. But in, inside, you're just, how'd they get that? How'd they afford that? Oh, jealousy. A God that knows all of our thoughts and yet loves us so much. How much? How much? See, listen to this. This psalmist, when he says, redeem us, Lord, for the sake of your steadfast love, he's saying, help us win some battles. Let Israel be great again. What he doesn't know is through his greatest failures being carried off into Babylon, God was going to redeem him, not with victory in battle, but by sending his own son down into our Babylon, down into our world to live a perfect life and die the death that we deserve, that God was going to redeem us with the precious blood of his sinless son. 
We have even more reason than the psalmist to be real and open with God because God knows us at our weakest. He knows us at our worst. He knows us at our most dark and depraved and sinful, and yet he's loved us at the cross. See, at the cross, the cross is like both humiliating and exalting. Because for all of us who think we're pretty good people, all we need is like some rules. Tell me what to do and I'm going to do it. The cross says, there was nothing you could do to save yourself. You are so bad, the son of God had to come and die for you. But at the same moment, Jesus says, I do it willingly. You're so loved, I willingly lay down my life for you. Hebrews 22, 12.2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder of our and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, listen, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Jesus despised the shame when he was hanging on the cross. Let me let a greater preacher than I, John Piper, explain this. Shame was stripping away every earthly support that Jesus had. His friends gave way in shaming abandonment. His reputation gave way in shaming mockery. His decency gave way in shaming nakedness. His comfort gave way in shaming torture. His glorious dignity gave way to the utterly undignified, degrading reflexes of grunting and groaning and screeching on the cross. And Jesus despised it. What does that mean? It means Jesus spoke to shame like this. Listen to me, shame. Do you see that joy in front of me? Compared to that, you're less than nothing. You are not worth comparing to that. I despise you. You think you have power? Compared to the joy before me, you have none. Joy, joy, joy. That is my power, not you, shame. You are worthless. You are powerless. You think you can distract me. I won't even look at you. I have a joy set before me. Why would I look at you, shame? You are ugly and despicable, and you are almost finished. You cover me now as with a shroud before you can say, so there, I will throw you off like a filthy rag. I will put on my royal robe. You think you're great because even last night you made my disciples run away. You are a fool, shame. You are a despicable fool. That abandonment, that loneliness, this cross, these tools of yours, they are my sacred suffering and will save my disciples, not destroy them. You are a fool. Your filthy hands fulfill holy prophecy. Fair well, shame, it is finished. Jesus despised the shame of a naked, brutal, humiliating crucifixion to save you from your sins. To say, yeah, that feeling of insecurity you have, it's real. You're limited. You can't do everything. You can't save yourself. You need this crucifixion. You need this new life. You need this new birth. You need this faith. But I'm despising the shame for the joy of your salvation. And so this morning, I ask you to believe that. I ask you to believe that and let the freedom of the gospel release you from that shame.
this election cycle, there was a guy named Russell Moore and he got in a little run in with Donald Trump on Twitter, which I wouldn't recommend. And he, Russell Moore is head of the ERLC. Uh, I can't remember all the stuff he does, but great man, gospel preacher, humble man. And Donald Trump tweeted at him and said, he's a nasty little man. And then CNN called Russell Moore and wanted an interview. And they said, Donald Trump says you're a nasty little man. What would you say to him? He says, Donald doesn't know the worst of it. I am indeed a nasty little man, and that's exactly why I need Jesus Christ to forgive me for all of my sins and wash me clean and give me his righteousness, impute his righteousness to me by faith. I was like, my first response would have been something like, let's meet Donald Trump. Come on, bring it on. Let's go. I'm going to grab that thing on your head. I'm going to figure something out. That's not right. But he responds, but shame does what it's supposed to do. Humbles him, humbles us, lets us know we are broken. We are nasty. We are sinful. And yet we're loved. Hear me. Your greatest fear is to be known and then rejected in the gospel, in the gospel, you're known and loved. And so to heal shame, to heal toxic shame, you need the gospel. You need forgiveness from Jesus. And you need a community of people who's not just religious, but they're gospel centered. They're willing to see the ugliness and love you in it. See the brokenness and love you through it. And that's exactly what we're trying to do here at Sacred City. And that's why you need to be a part of a missional community. And we invite you into it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you. Oh, as the psalmist prayed, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And he had no idea how over the top you would answer that prayer. Didn't just send them a a David, a mighty warrior to help them win their battles. You sent your son to reject the shame of the cross and to buy us back. You have indeed redeemed us. You have indeed bought your people back. And I pray we would put our faith in you this morning. And those maybe for the first time would say, Father God, I believe. Help my unbelief that you would save them this morning. You would redeem them this morning. And those who have been walking a religious path, who have fallen back into this idea that we need to edit ourselves and hide our faults and come to you with these kind of bland, emotionless, rote religious prayers. I pray that you would breathe new life into them. You'd breathe your spirit and our prayer lives would be awakened to the, by the fire of God. Fall on us, Holy Spirit. And as we come to the table, we bring nothing. We bring our brokenness. We bring our open hands and we say we need to be filled And I thank you, Father, that we have something to put in their hands this morning. We have the broken body of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus that should convince us, no matter how bad our life is going, that the Father loves us because he went that far to love us. We thank you for this sacred moment this morning, Father. We praise your name in Jesus' name. Amen.